Okay, so let me clarify a little bit. Even a major solar flare could bring all of this down. When you've spent your entire life supporting something to be told it might be wrong is very, very threatening. So this is a sociological, psychological issue. Young Flamingo Club. Science Club. Young Flamingo Club. Presents Science Club. The Young Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science Welcome to the Young Flamingo Club Today we have an extraordinary guest as per usual In fact, this might be the most extraordinary guest we've ever had on Young Flamingo Club Egyptologist, geologist, PhD, Robert Schock. Dr. Schock, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming on. Hopefully Justin is here. Sometimes he gets lost within. I am here. I was just, uh, I was just uh, catching up on some last minute research. I was uh, watching Dr. Shaw's interview on Joe Rogan. Yeah, that's a total classic interview. Um, and I guess we should probably jump right into some of these questions here, Dr. Robert Schuck. Um, I guess uh, one of my first questions and something that uh, I was, you know, pondering about a little bit, how did you develop an interest in uh, Egyptology? Everyone, I guess, develops their interest in a different way, but specifically Egyptology. How did you get an interest in this? Okay, so let me clarify a little bit. I would not call myself an Egyptologist, even though I've been working in Egypt for the last 30 years. I'm a geologist by training. My PhD is geology and geophysics, but I happen to apply my geological training to Egyptology and to Egyptian things. And in answer to your question, we could talk for the entire period about um, how I got interested in it, but I'll make it very, very brief. As a child, young child, single digit, um, so before 10, I was interested in ancient history. I had a grandmother who um, was interested in ancient history. She had an incredible library. She was very open to the concept that ancient people really did have something to say to us that was of of importance, not just that it was trivia, oh, it's neat to think about what people were doing thousands of years ago, but they may have even had some wisdom that we can benefit from. So that was a very important background. I um, discovered once at a flea market, ancient Roman coin and a box of coins that was otherwise modern coins. I actually recognized that it was an ancient coin and bought it for 50 cents or something. That got me even more interested. Maybe I was 12 then or so. Um, so I became more and more interested in these things, just little bits and pieces. I went to college. I decided I was going to study art history with a specialty in ancient studies, studies of ancient art that did not last long because I took a geology course and fell in love with geology. So I ended up spending the next four years studying geology, anthropology, never losing my interest in art history and all things ancient. But when you talk about ancient geology, it goes back even millions and billions of years. 
years. So it was just sort of extension. I went to graduate school at Yale, geology and geophysics, became very interested in a number of topics within geology, including the end of the last ice age. And I mentioned this specifically because much of my work has actually focused on ancient people at the end of the last ice age. So one thing led to another. I end up teaching at Boston University, where I still am, have been there for since 1984, hate to date myself. And while at Boston University, in my early years there, I came to know John Anthony West. And I came to know John Anthony West because he was what he called himself an independent Egyptologist. And he was looking for a trained geologist to analyze the Great Sphinx from a geological point of view. And that's super interesting because uh, I myself have gone down the route. Obviously, I don't have a PhD, but I am a self-trained uh, software engineer. So I understand of, you know, kind of self-teaching and having a background in technology can, you know, uh, lead you into other things. It, it, nowadays, and I'm an academic, I live in an academic world. I still teach. I mean, still, I teach full-time at Boston University. Back in the old days, I hate to put it this way, when I was at Yale in the late 70s, early 80s, that you needed a PhD that was sort of the calling card to get into academia. But I remember faculty members at Yale, at Harvard, at very good institutions, and many of them were senior renowned in their field. Some of them actually did not have PhDs at the time. It was much more emphasis on self-training and what had you done that really made a mark? Um, not that you had to prove, oh, you'd taken so many courses. So, but you know, we're, the world changes. It, it, it does change. So, so, so you, you, you take a look at, at, the, at the enclosures geology and, and, and from there you conclude um, the main type of weathering evident on the Sphinx enclosure walls were, you know, prolonged and seemed like there was uh, rainfall or, or, or erosion. Um, so this me Yeah, I was going to say, uh, prolonged so and protracted rains are quite evident geologically on the body of the Sphinx, but more specifically on the walls of the Sphinx enclosure, as you're commenting. And people who have not been there, they should realize that the body of the Sphinx was carved down into the bedrock. So it sits in what's known as the Sphinx ditch or the Sphinx um, enclosure. And it's really the walls of that enclosure that gave me the first solid evidence that the Sphinx must have its origins going back further. The Sphinx is on the edge of the Sahara. Hyperarid conditions had already set in. The amount and degree of rainfall weathering from precipitation that I've been able to analyze on the Sphinx pushes the date definitely back to a more moist pre-Sahara period. So right away, so it says something about the age of the Sphinx. Yeah, one hundred percent. And I, you know, just doing uh, and reading your research, uh, the rainfall ends between early third um, millennium BC, um, and this obviously means the Sphinx construction must date to the sixth or fifth millennium BC. Then, 
minimally, minimally, uh, based on the calibrations, based on a lot of other things. And this gets into something that I did with my colleague, Thomas DeBecky, a geophysicist, Dr. Thomas DeBecky. We looked at subsurface seismic weathering uh, around the base of the Sphinx. And when you start calibrating that and putting everything together, I now push the origins, the ultimate origins of the Sphinx back to before the end of the last ice age, circa 10,000 BC. What effect would this have other than the discovery that it was, you know, it's older than people think? What kind of effect what does that have on modern day society? Well, what it really says, and this is really the core of my work, my the way I view it, my, the core of my work is not the Sphinx. It's not the age of the Sphinx. That's just one little piece of evidence. What I've really developed over the last 30 years is the argument, and I think I've put, to, put a lot of evidence together to demonstrate this, and a lot of evidence has come forth, that there was an earlier cycle of civilization. There was advanced civilization, true civilization, before the end of the last ice age, which is dated to 9700 BC or 11,700 years ago, that a cycle, I call it a cycle of civilization, had actually arisen, was developing. There were natural catastrophes at the end of the last ice age. That's what threw us out of the ice age. It was actually a solar outburst. That's my uh, analysis. And the early civilization of the time, the early civilizations, if you want to use plural, uh, pockets of culture, high, highly developed culture, were devastated by the natural catastrophes at the end of the last ice age, thrown back to a much more, we'll call it, quote, primitive state. My um, fellow academics, not in geology, but in Egyptology and history, said that was absolutely impossible because they knew that civilization had not emerged until 4,000, 3,000 uh, BC at the earliest. And I was saying, no, it went back much, much further. And that we had earlier civilization that collapsed. That would basically mean that the whole, you know, what we've been taught in school through history, that, you know, the evolution of man, that there was a, like, a, like you said, like a developed civilization man before that. And then do you think that that can teach us that our current society could also go through that? Absolutely. That is the most important point, in my opinion. It's not just um, this, you know, oh, they're so interesting, older people and old civilizations. And, uh, you know, my, my Egyptological colleagues, I, I don't want to make fun of them, but I want to say this. Many of them study dynastic Egypt. Dynastic Egypt, you know, New Kingdom period is 1300, 1400 for the height of the New Kingdom, or maybe they study the Old Kingdom, 2500, 2600 BC. That's when they placed the Sphinx. I know it was used during that period, Old Kingdom times, but it goes back much earlier. But what I wanted to mention is that many times they just find it sort of interesting to see these ancient civilizations. They don't put a lot of emphasis that we could actually learn anything from them. And I think that's wrong. I think we can learn a lot from these ancient civilizations on several different levels. One is, I think they might have something to teach us directly. Secondly, we should learn that 
they were thriving and they were brought down by natural catastrophes. We are just as vulnerable. In fact, I would say we are more vulnerable, believe it or not, than these early um, cycle of civilization. We're even more vulnerable than they were, especially solar events, which I uh, develop in my book, Forgotten Civilization. I'm only mentioning this in case people want to read more about it. Uh, with our high technology, what we're doing right now, we're doing this through um, electronics. I, you know, you, we're different parts of the country. Uh, but we are very vulnerable to uh, even a major solar flare could bring all of this down. 100%. And I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, for the sake of uh, the show, we aren't going to mention uh, these people's names, but it, uh, you know, some people have used the word uh, pseudoscience. I mean, it, it seems like every time a scientist provides evidence like yourself that challenges conventional narratives, the scientific establishment is quick to label, like yourself, that person's work, uh, it's pseudoscience. I mean, what would it take for a major discovery to be generally, to, to be generally accepted in, in the scientific community? Like, like I, I really do feel like you've, you've made a, a good discovery. Oh, I, I absolutely feel like I've made a good discovery and I've put a lot of pieces together, if I say so myself. And this is something I've thought a lot about. Other people have thought about. One of the classics in the field, of course, is Thomas Kuhn, who's written about paradigms and how paradigms have to be overturned in scientific revolutions and revolution in the genuine sense that no science is not necessarily incremental. What happens is that you have a paradigm, you have a worldview, you have a set way of thinking and there are so many people that are trained in that way of thinking the funding apparatus reward people who are um, pursuing that paradigm the um, uh, they drive people out who are not in that paradigm the whole concept of peer review for instance sounds good to those who don't quite understand it and it serves us certain function. I understand that. But on the other hand, the peers are also in many cases supporting a certain paradigm. We see this all the time. We see this, the classic example is the uh, Ptolemaic system of the sun goes around the earth and the earth is the center of the universe being overturned ultimately by the Copernican and Galilean system. But in the meantime, of course, Copernicus dies on his deathbed. Uh, Galileo certainly produced so much evidence supporting the sun being the center of what we would now call the solar system and not the earth, yet he was uh, punished for it and put under house arrest, etc. His works were banned. We still have these things going on to this day. So what does it take in answer to the question? One of the truisms, and many people have said this now, what it takes is a new generation. It takes for the old generation that is invested and has put all their eggs, if you would, in the basket of a certain paradigm, has their ego tied up with that paradigm, and has all their vested interests in that paradigm and cannot look beyond it. I mean, it, it's when you've spent your entire life supporting something to be told it might be wrong is very, very threatening. So this is a sociological, psychological issue. A lot of people don't realize that there's so much um, non-objectivity -obj in modern science.
Young Flamingo Club Science Club Young Flamingo Club Presents Science Club The Young Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science Flamingo Club Science